Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Pramod Visvanat, professor of engineering at Princeton and the co-founder of Witness Chain. We talk about his early interests that led him to work on wireless, the early wireless industry, and how research was brought to market at that time. We then talk about the introduction of adversarial thinking in his research, the move over to blockchain, how the incentives of blockchain can be used within the wireless industry, and his new project, Witness Chain, and how they aim to reshape wireless. Now, before we start in, I want to share that one of our ZK Summit partners, Alio, are currently in their third incentivized testnet phase. Alio allows for programmable privacy, and with their testnet, developers can now build their own private and scalable applications. If you want to try it out, check out their repo at github.com slash AlioHQ. I also want to let you know that there is a new ZK Hack multi-week event coming up starting on November 22nd. This is our third edition, and again, we'll be bringing you a ZK puzzle hacking competition, as well as a number of workshops with the best teams in the space. Be sure to sign up for a kickoff event. I'll add the link to that in the show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon. Introducing Polygon ZK EVM. We all know that Ethereum needs to scale, and Polygon believes that zero-knowledge tech is the best way forward. Polygon's vision for ZK EVM is simple. Developers can seamlessly deploy any Ethereum smart contract to a layer 2 and benefit from the scaling power of ZK proofs. It's also permissionless, meaning anyone can use it, and open source. Polygon ZK EVM was built by Polygon, but it's for anyone and everyone who wants a cheaper and faster way to use Ethereum without sacrificing security or decentralization. Public testnet is now available, so you now have an opportunity to test their work and make improvements. Join them for this journey. If you'd like to learn more about Polygon ZK EVM and stay up to date on the latest, go to bit.ly forward slash start on ZK EVM and check out the Getting Started Guide. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash start on ZK EVM. So thanks again, Polygon. And now here's our episode. Today, Tarun and I are here with Pramod Visvanat, professor of engineering at Princeton and co-founder of Witness Chain. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. Happy to be here. So we've had two of your kind of associate colleagues on the show already, David Shea and Sriram Kanan. I'm going to add links to these episodes in the show notes. I think one question that starts here is like, because each of you mentioned the other, and I'm very curious, like who nerd sniped who? <laughs> you know, this blockchain is a chain of blocks, and there's a chain here too. Um, they, I was David Shea's very first uh, PhD student. He was my co-PhD advisor, and Sriram Kannan was my PhD advisee. Nice. And uh, I'm sort of the missing link between the two. And I also had some role in encouraging both of them to join this uh, whole research saga and adventure on blockchains. You did, okay. And I saw, I mean, a lot of the work we actually mentioned in those two episodes, PRISM, Blockchain is a race and Nakamoto always wins. Like these papers, these works, you're also co-authors on a lot of these. So Indeed. is this like, I, I just called you colleagues or associates, but what are you actually? Because you're all at different universities too, right? Like it's not always. Yes, but we talk probably three times a day, every okay. day for the last many years. Um, my daughter's very first English word was day for David, because <laughs> David, dad was talking to David like every day. <laughs> nice. That's cool. 
Would you say it's in those conversations that a lot of these ideas are being shared and sort of the, the origins for these works are happening? Indeed. You know, research, uh, we become, even though we are professors and they're students, it sounds like a hierarchy, but uh, at, uh, at a PhD and a graduate level, we are really friends and we're very, very close to each other uh, and at a very, just sheer number of hours spent, thousands of hours over a four or five year period. And you get to know each other at a very close level, especially intellectually, how you think. And, um, and that stays on uh, over a lifetime. And... Um, it's really a privilege to be part of that. Cool. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning of your research. And I mean, I know that wireless, P2P networks, this is what we're going to talk about for this first part of the interview. The work that you were doing on that, kind of in the lead up to this though, like what were you interested in that led you to work on that field in the first place? What was it? Was it the math? Was it the engineering? Was it the challenge? Was it because it was like relevant at the time? Or is it something that you, yeah, were, were very interested in from the start? I mean, as a kid, as a, a typical uh, sort of a student who's interested in math and science and engineering, you're interested in what the things that Hollywood promotes, you know, AI, science, tech. And uh, I was interested, I came to Berkeley in computer science uh, as a graduate student. Uh, to do um, AI and machine learning. It was a bit early for its time. This is 1995. Mm. It was at the cusp, just before the real uh, AI boom took off in maybe seven to eight years too early. But I've always been interested in trying to bring uh, tech to as many people and improve the human condition. It was a bit early. AI sounded a bit uh, too, uh, when I actually started reading and get to grad school, I felt this was not right there. Whereas wireless was just happening. The internet was happening, not so much yeah, wireless. Yeah. The internet was happening and it was very clear. The first um, search engine, Inktomi, was my lab mate and I could see the internet just growing around me. So I wanted to be part of this uh, revolution and Berkeley allowed me to pick any advisor I like. The first year is open and I took that opportunity to explore what I would like to do and I... Um, spent my PhD years just trying to understand how to efficiently bring communication to the masses, really wireless mm. communication. So is this idea of like trying to actually get it into the hands of many, but at the time, was there, was it mobile or was it like, what was wireless? Wireless was a old thing, right? Hundred plus years and, you know, Marconi and the transatlantic wire from, um, from the, from the U.S. to the U.K. and so well over 100 years. So it's a long thing, very old history. Uh, but, uh, 95, 96, it was clear that there was a time where the technology was growing and phones were available. It's just that they were very clunky and, um, not the greatest of all coverage everywhere. Um, and definitely not man, woman, child. But it was clear that this uh, was a, has an important role in bringing people together. Did you think at the time, like, was it already clear that there's going to be like cell phones in every hand very soon? Or was it sort of still a question mark? I was just a student. I was a, <laughs> maybe I should just say I was a nerd. Um, and I didn't think of these broader questions, okay. but it was very clear, even to my, you know, when I was explaining my research to my grandmother, it was very clear what this would entail. Mm. So it didn't need to convince many people what this would, uh, if uh, phones got to everybody, it would, what it would be. But the vision was there that we want to bring this to everyone. And there was one more vision, Anna, which was that Phones were just used to make phone calls, like a telephone, you know, phone. Uh, but we really wanted to merge the internet 
which is a network which mm-hmm. was taking off around us with the another network which is the wireless network and these two networks were as disparate as can be they were disparate technologically they were disparate like literally separate sets of things mm-hmm. and there was also the separate in terms of applications was it different companies running each of those as entirely, well entirely right yeah, the internet fully different was sort of decentralized yeah. yeah totally different the internet was sort of decentralized it was up and coming you know america aol and the company of yahoo uh, this was way before google right so this is the early days of uh, of the internet and basically dot com mm. and um Well, it had a lot more decentralized aspect, kind of a feel of what today we see in crypto. Cool. Um, and uh, wireless was uh, very old, large companies. I mean, the the biggest gorilla of them all was AT and T. Um, it was so big that they got broken up into two parts, AT and T and and Lucent, and they had, they had these big operations where they would literally draw wires all over the country and. um you know tel- AT&T telephone so it was um they were very centralized versus decentralized very hierarchical and physical networks compared to packets and switching on the internet so they were very different mm. so, so i think one thing that maybe the listeners of this podcast might not know a ton about is sort of the also the fight that sort of took place over buying spectrum uh in that era and like sort of how the commerce side of wireless interacted with the technology technological side so i guess you know how would you kind of describe the kind of evolution of the wireless industry because you know it sort of started as car phones and very like low energy radio things to like hey now we have people competing in spectrum auctions and people buying other companies just for for the spectrum and how did that like impact the the kind of research like was there sort of a feedback loop between what research was done and sort of what new technologies were people were willing to kind of sponsor or how, how did that go about was it the research that caused certain technologies to be sponsored or Yeah thanks Tarun I mean it's a complicated question and I was there at the time so the issue I would say the, the main way to characterize the state of affairs at the time was that it's a very permissioned system you know to use a blockchain language very permissioned you have to be it's a country club there are only a few people and you have to be in the room literally uh, to be part of any conversation whether that conversation meant on the business side buying spectrum or on a technology side um, you know actually impacting what kind of protocols and what algorithms and what tech goes over um it was a very low risk appetite very permissioned country club mm. i think a feeling to the whole industry to be fair it's a complicated industry it remains so because it's capital intensive you want to cover the whole earth really like literally cover it right you have to be yeah. everywhere you have to put uh, access points it has also got hardware aspects to it it has antennas and you alluded to spectrum which is uh, regulated by you know governments um so it it had multiple aspects to it and um at the end it became very risk averse Mm. and very permissioned and the internet on the other hand was so open and the wires had been done for decades earlier right during the darpa project and the setups were there and the intelligence had just come to the computers and the browser was just born at that time early to mid 90s and um, now that you have a browser you can build applications on it and e-commerce was an obvious uh, application mm. When you were doing this like the the wireless research were you actually designing new forms that these networks could take but like probably wouldn't take at the time because of this incumbency because of the 
late, like capital intensive nature of the industry? Was it sort of like experiments that you were putting out there, but not necessarily getting to see them happen in real life, to see them yeah, become alive? Yeah, it's entirely true. We wanted to make the protocol simpler, make the hardware simpler, just de-risk the business in a way. From mm -hmm. a, Now that I look back, I wasn't so much a business person, but not have these vertically integrated stacks and, and spread them apart. And uh, now in the hindsight, I can look back. That's because that was what the internet was. Yeah. Uh, every individual person could take their own relatively low risk and easy way to get onto the wagon and uh, ex experiment and explore and see where the market takes you. Um, whereas wireless was so risk covered. So research really was about how to build decentralized or peer to peer was also a big thing. BitTorrent had come around that time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's again on the wired side. And we were trying to understand what the implications would be and how would you in any practical way bring such way of thinking I wouldn't see the same technology, but a way of thinking to wireless, which is so vertically integrated and, you know, everything is controlled together. So in other words, all the pieces work. For example, I'll give you an example, Anna. So, uh, and what I mean by they're all completely tightly centralized controlled, right? You have a phone, you're moving around, you go from one place to another, and you will go from the view of one base station, which is where you're talking to, to another one, simply because you moved. Mm -hmm. And this could be, let's say, a couple of miles. If those base stations had to be talking to each other in a close way, so you could hand over the conversation from one end to the other end as you move. And this was a basic requirement of uh, phone, mobility, mobile phones, right? That's what it means to be mobile. I mean, if you're static, then you had a phone, it was on the wall. So the whole point was to allow mobility. And if you make a very centralized decision where all the base stations are coupled together, they're synchronized to milliseconds or even hundreds of microseconds, the crystals are so clear, they're all synced, and then the signal can move from one to another without breaking your call. Mm. And that was how the designs were. And so they were very careful uh, controlled um, electronics together with the protocols. The internet was completely opposite. It was packets, packets would get dropped, they would be resent. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was really a free for all. Wireless was the opposite side. Interesting. Do you feel though, over time, did wireless move more towards the internet model? Or was it more that tech got good enough that you could use that sort of perfect model better? The market forces were clear that you should move towards uh, decentralized. Okay. And uh, it happened in two different ways. And it's a little bit uh, subtle. And I'll, uh, I'll come back to this later in this, uh, in our uh, discussions. But the tech part was not there. And that is something that uh, uh, we were working on. And in 1999, uh, I did an internship at um, Lucent at Bell Labs. And I met a great engineer uh, scientist. His name is Rajiv Laroya. We get along. We got along spectacularly. It was a moment where I had spent time thinking of how to build uh, such decentralized wireless networks, how to make them efficient, what would be ways in which people can join asynchronously uh, and still be connected and not got dropped off. Together with uh, Rajiv Laroya's uh, vision of how to build a whole system around it that can scale in a global way and connect to the internet efficiently, and so that was a a spectacular summer of 1999. It was also the peak of the dot-com. Mm -hmm. And Rajiv uh, was at the cusp of uh, saying that we should take this technology out of Bell Labs and commercialize it. Oh, but did you do it? Yeah, so Rajiv Laroya started this in late 99. And I started off, joined them in early 2000, just as I finished my PhD. 
and uh, this company was called well it was called radio router oh. you know it's a radio but a router so really want to be both radio as a phone and router as a core component of the internet ah. so and in fact our tagline was every bit wireless interesting what what could you do at that time what was actually possible the phones were still clunky so there was just a few phone companies and the phones were very clunky this uh, and uh, in our just in our pitch slides we are things like imagine you can do email on your phone <laughs> um, and so people had to imagine that mm-hmm. uh, but it was clear that email was there mapquest i mean google maps weren't there or apple maps but mapquest was there so people would download maps from the online and you can print it and so it was changing the changing many things that people were used to from a physical world to the cyber world so they could imagine it but the hardware was not there but we were doing the algorithms and the tech underlying it mm. Did you so this was your first foray outside of academia I guess was that's this right. your this first, first job right out of uh, PhD okay. um, sort of first foray that's right but this wasn't your company this wasn't you weren't found co-founding this you were joining someone well maybe I was employee too or okay, three, okay. Or, uh, very early, early. I, mean, I was also working with them beforehand yeah I learned a lot through this experience of being in the industry and being an entrepreneur and cool Sorry, what year? We're now just after the dot-com bubble. We're so in ninety-nine. Like yeah, it was still uh, when we raised the money and we still did it. It was still the very peak of dot-com, March two okay. thousand, and then September came and the whole thing crashed. And two thousand one was really bad because there, uh, that's when the communication crash happened. I mean, people remember the dot-com crash of two thousand, but two thousand one to two thousand two is where all the communication companies uh, went belly up. These are, you know, like the Titanic's of the era. Global Crossing had put uh, fibers all over the oceans and uh, connected the continents really, and um, they went belly up. I mean, wow. they had no business. Most of the there was no data flowing. There was no YouTube. Yeah. And all these fibers were dark, and they went belly up and. sold on pennies on the dollar really fire sale at that time so it was a bad time to be in communications and and networking those years that's interesting it was like the rails they were setting the rails in place for something that didn't exist yet this sounds right. oddly familiar to our industry <laughs> but anyway <laughs> well i i i think i think the funny thing is like didn't you write your your kind of wireless communications textbook around that time you, like it's funny if i look at the timing it's like right you know like right at the the, the <laughs> bottom of the market was the perfect time to write a textbook <laughs> because that's when i felt uh, i think we i we had done the research right during my phd and uh, david shay's uh, research he had just gotten tenure and here i was i'd come from this startup experience being in the real world how to design protocols which algorithms which research makes practical sense which ones go together and also they have to be this is another thing that has a commonality to blockchain is that wireless at the end has to be very robust and very simple uh, in two ways first it has to scale globally like man woman child everybody will hold a phone and and you can't be worried about interference so you have to handle it at a core level in a robust level the other thing about wireless is that these are gigahertz radio signals so every leaf of every tree will bounce off the signals in different ways mm. so if you are not designing for that in a robust way and upfront uh, you'll never get there and uh, i got you trained as an engineer as a system engineer to think about robustness and scalability these two points uh, you know very very uh, it got into the blood basically mm. you think in, becomes instinctive uh, that any protocol any algorithm that you think about any tech does it pass uh, robustness and scalability 
and this came in handy when we did blockchains. Um, Before we go into that, actually, that that book, The Fundamentals of Wireless Communication, I learned in the interview with David that this was like the book that described it at that moment in the best way, sort of like the formalized version of all that research in a way that could be taught. I actually wanted to ask you about like, like in turn, I sort of, I think you sort of alluded to it, like you did this at the bottom of the, like where the market had already crashed out in a way. Do you think that the reason you could do that textbook then was that there was enough research and maybe the research had crystallized? How did you know it was ready to be kind of like fixed in, in print? I think it's partly both uh, of the factors that you mentioned. First is that we had done research for roughly, I would say, seven, eight years by then. Okay. Seven years through my PhD and uh, and David's uh, own personal research. And uh, at that time, we had also built this uh, as a practical system. And uh, on the field, this was uh, someone that radio router is not a good name. So it was called Flareon Technologies. Mm. And it sounds like toothpaste or something. <laughs> well, radio router also sounds a little like it's from the 60s or something. So maybe, That's right. maybe it's better, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the things we did in this book and something I clearly, clearly remember is that at the end, every few pages, every at the end of every chapter for sure, we had something called a system view, mm. which is to put together all the ideas and how they would all fit together through these two lenses, ruthless lenses of robustness and scalability. What would it mean? Individually, there could be an idea that's a breakthrough. I mean, this is truly deep tech. Wireless is, um, you know, rocket science, like literally rocket science. Rockets fly because we can communicate and oh, you know, wow. do wireless. Yeah. And so this is deep tech, but at the same time, one can get into a very narrow uh, aspect and like do it exactly the right way, like optimal. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense if you put them as a whole system. Uh, they don't fit together. So every now and then in this book, we had the system view aspects taking a whole stack view of how uh, these protocols, this deep tech would fit in in the broader context. Yeah. And we had these two ruthless lenses, like I said, they're very sharp, uh, sharp instruments, robustness and scalability. Are they like either or? Like, do you get more robust for less scalability or more scalability and less robust? Or can you get like high on both? Yeah, they're complementary. Okay. So you can get efficiency and optimality at the risk of robustness. Okay. And similarly, you can get optimality and efficiency at the risk of not having scalability. Mm-hmm. So you can just have more performance, but not be as robust or scalable. So usually there's a third component, which is performance. You know, you want to do one gigabits per second or, or high throughput. That's a n- normal thing people think of. But then you may not be, you may not have coverage everywhere, or it may be less robust. Something happens and you suddenly start getting into a phone, car and start driving and your car drops. So you want to be efficient and have high performance. At the same time, uh, you want to be robust and scalable. This is the central engineering challenge. Efficiency is kind of, everybody wants high efficiency, mm-hmm. it's clear. Mm-hmm. But, but wireless was especially so because you were paying uh, dollars for spectrum. So ah. it was roughly a few hundred dollars per hertz of spectrum nationwide uh, license. And you would need something like, uh, at that time, 1.3 megahertz, but today, like five megahertz channels to transmit on the phone. This is really bottom line then. It's like you need to be able to get as much into that to make it worthwhile to run these whole structures, I guess. Can I, can I ask maybe a stupid question, which I actually have not, never heard the story to? When did governments realize that they could have a monopoly on spectrum? Because like, you know, think about this way, like if you're, if you're like, you know, Marconi coming up with the radio, 
it's not like the Italian government was there like, no, 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 you have to pay us per hertz, right? So like, when did governments versus industry kind of realize like, hey, this is a sort of public good that we're going to commandeer? Because blockchains have the same actual problem <gasps> in some, in some ways. Uh, excellent. I mean, I, I'm no expert on this history, but World War II was a era of uh, radar and wireless. So it was clear that wars are won uh, by having uh, wireless technology. Mm. Very, very clear. It would have made a pivotal difference. And um, and cracking the codes, uh, the Enigma codes. And so there was a whole history of communication and wireless in general having central roles in how human civilizations uh, it affected, you know, a lot of in all of our civilization. I, I think that had some big role in governments realizing, gee, I mean, not so much making money as much as, you know, controlling our nationhood and statehood. So even at the start of the wireless industry, that like in, in the way that we understand it, in the time you were there, like the government had already been keeping tabs on this for a long, long time. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it's only gotten deeper enmeshment. It's like transportation networks, like roads, and it's just uh, in the air. Yeah, true. That's where the information goes. When did this book come out and actually who's it tailored for? The book came out in 2004. So it's roughly, um, you know, I started thinking about this in 1996, about eight years of um, both research, thought process, and on the field experience uh, in an entrepreneurial way and bringing this tech in a scalable way. So it's, and the book indeed was a mix of both. It had algorithms, it had, fun, the title said it, it was fundamentals, but at the same time had a very system view is what we called it. Mm. So the audience was both universities. We taught it our own home universities. It was taught in dozens of universities around the world, uh, including all the mainstream ones in the US and uh, to the companies. So we gave lectures, we've given tutorials, and it's used at most of the wireless companies. Um, even today? Um, even, yeah, even today. Actually, quick, not... quick question. How much of the book would you say, just like ballpark guess, was theory known prior to 1999 and you working in industry? And how much of the like exercises or problems in the book came from like, hey, I was working and I ran into this thing and it didn't work out of curiosity? Because like, you wrote this book after having both like an academic experience as well as a practical experience. Mm. Like how would you divide up the book in that way? Yeah, it's uh, the first few chapters I think were somewhat known, uh, but even there, there were subtleties, especially when you started looking at robustness. When we were summarizing work all done in, the, in a short four or five year window. And some of the chapters and exercises were really brand new because they were done because we understood the landscape so when you want to uh, of uh, the engineering design space, once you understand the design space, it's somewhat high dimensional, but you know the design space. Now you start saying, oh, there's a vacuum here, you know, with this uh, dimension, with antennas and robustness, there's no protocol and we don't know how it fits in and how they sit together. So that's a new uh, component to study. Um, so I enjoy this process of uh, this pedagogical aspect uh, is not just one way. So that means all the things we did, we can explain. But really, it has uh, gone back the other direction several times where it gives me ideas of um, new ideas to pursue. Hmm. Kind of moving from that point forward in your story, did you stay in industry? I kind of know the answer to this. Or did you return to academia? Yeah, I returned back to academia. I, I went, uh, became a professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
I've always been close to the industry, so I've always had both hats okay. at different timescales uh, over my career, uh, and um, rarely doing both at the same time, but one or the other in an intense way, but without ever taking my foot off of both. And mostly because I find them very synergistic with each other. Mm-hmm. When I'm teaching, I get new ideas uh, that have different timescales uh, of being uh, useful from a practical standpoint. And when I'm uh, in the pr- in the practical era, I get a very visceral feel of exactly what the burning questions are. Yeah. And some of these questions are business questions, and some of them actually have deep tech questions. And um, mm. you don't know these things unless you try both. And I enjoy this aspect of being uh, of being both. When you went back, though, did you continue to work on wireless, or did you sort of switch directions? Yeah, indeed. Uh, one of my first students at the time, after when I went back, and early students was Sriram Kanan. Okay, that was uh, when you he was. Met the... Sri, you met yeah, Sriram, yeah. Nice. and um, uh, and his PhD was on basically generalizing this idea of how to make wireless as decentralized as possible, instead of having these base stations so coupled with each other where their clocks are coupled to you know tens to hundreds of microseconds, can we have base stations that are separate, they somehow find a way of synchronizing, basically bringing BitTorrent-like protocols on the internet to wireless. Mm. And so that was Sriram's PhD thesis. And I had several, a few other students who did PhD thesis broadly on this topic, which is how to do it efficiently, how to route uh, data, how to manage interference. Because if everybody talks at the same time and they're not being synchronized, that's no good. So how do you handle interference? These were things that we worked on with a series of research topics. There was this period though, where like P2P at least sort of had a drop off. Did you ever shift focus? Did you ever look at other kind of angles? In other words, Web2, right? The other angle at the time, the industry moved decisively from decentralization, the vision of Web1, the internet, to closer and closer to Web2. So Mm -hmm. from 2006, 2007, when uh, Sriram started his PhD with me, all the way to 2012 to 14, by the time the Web2 had been firmly entrenched, which is just a few players control all aspects. They control the source, which is YouTube, where you upload data. They control the output, where you interact with the data. So both sides, uh, the major platforms of today, uh, they had strongly enmeshed themselves in the economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, they were the economy, you could say. And Apple, the big event that happened was that Apple came just before um, Flareon was acquired by Qualcomm. Oh, so I should say that the technology we did that Flareon today uh, finally came into fruition. Today it's called 4G LTE. Oh, cool. Yeah. But it took some time because technology takes time and wireless is slower to adapt, partly because uh, it's just as hardware aspects. And we're at an era where uh, hardware has become commodity enough that it can be programmable, um, but it's still, uh, still not there yet. And that's something I'm working on very actively. Well, well, actually, one question about that era was, you know, I remember in the 2000s, there were all these projects by, you know, now the big tech giants, but at the time, I think they were maybe a little more in puberty about like, they all tried to do their own wireless projects and like none of them really survived. Do you remember that era, right? Like Google bought Motorola and stuff like that. What kind of lessons can we learn from the idea of like whatever new technology is trying to buy the old technology because I, I, I kind of feel like in some ways, crypto has had things like that where, where, where people have tried to like buy old technology or buy sort of, I hate the phrase Web 2 or Web 3, but like Web mm. 2 in air quotes, uh, technologies and try to bolt them on. 
Do you, do you think there are any like lessons to draw from this idea of like, hey, like the innovators who try to do the old thing usually fail somehow once they're big enough? Yeah, I think it's the innovator's dilemma. I mean, the, I think, uh, I mean, I can't speak to exactly uh, what the big tech companies' interests in wireless are, but to the extent I interacted, it was mostly about making sure Google products and Facebook could be on more people. Um, and so it's just to get to the end mile. But wireless was more than that. It was about opening up platforms to others. And um, yeah, so I think uh, so with the open aspect, the composable, the programmable aspect of uh, wireless uh, and the vision that you would get by having such open radios, just having a link and doing what you can do over it, it was not fully aligned with, uh, with the platform's sort of business core business goals. Uh, at, at the same time, I think uh, wireless became part of our society. I have an anthropologist friend who talks about how humans started wearing clothes. That's a major thing we carry on our body. And the second most carried thing is some form of money, which is some form of money. Okay. Uh, it could be a wallet, but it could be some form of money. Mm -hmm. And the third most carried thing on the human uh, body has been a phone. <laughs> of all time. And it, so it changed us as, uh, as, uh, as an animal species and how we interact with each other uh, through this device. Mm. Um, and it became, it was, a, it was a force of nature, in other words. There is some biology that drove uh, wireless so much. Well, let's bring it kind of up to present and the topic we tend to cover on this show. So that's kind of going back to the second thing, the form of currency that people hold on their person. But at what point did your work start to intersect with the blockchain world? And like, yeah, did you sort of ignore blockchain at the beginning or Bitcoin at the beginning? Or do you feel like you, you spotted it right off the bat? Oh, I didn't spot it. I mean, I'd heard of Bitcoin and, uh, but you know, just like anybody else probably uh, read some articles about it and, mm -hmm. and did it. And I'm not, I was not following it. I was in wireless, which was kind of separate from that. Uh, and I was not following it. But sometime around 2015, and I was looking for what other things to work on, I still was interested in wireless. I had a student who was very, very passionate about rebuilding wireless networks that are robust, uh, but in a different way. Robust, not just, um, like I said, every leaf of every tree bouncing off signals, but robust to um, adversaries. Mm. And that was my first time. I was used to adversary, but my adversary was usually nature when I was doing wireless. Okay. So you could say it's, uh, it's oh, not adversary. It's, it's adversarial. More, oh, I get it. Okay. So it's you're, benign. Yeah. It's relatively benign. But, uh, but this student was very interested in uh, people adversarially trying to do uh, wireless for, uh, you could say, malicious purposes. Mm. And uh, the student's name was Julia Fanti. And she drove this research in a very strong way. You know, sometimes people have this view that uh, maybe outside in the show, right? People think professors and students are like a hierarchy, but and I think I alluded to the fact that it's more equal, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's the other way around too. And in this case, it was very much, I was uh, driven by um, her passion and focus on trying to build wireless tech that was uh, decentralized. And we're trying to do decentralized in two ways. First, at that time, this was the time of Hong Kong protests and Arab protests and Arab Spring. So people were using phones to team up to meet in a certain place to protest. Mm -hmm. And the authoritarian governments were using cell towers to triangulate who is using this particular app to coordinate and zero in. Yeah. And like literally triangulate physically where you are and come and catch you while you're on the phone, this kind wow. of thing. And the technology was, because it was centralized, you could do such a thing. 
The second thing was when you send a message, they would try to track down which IP address sent it and go back and uh, catch it through that. And so we were interested, and I think Julia was very interested in trying to avoid both types and basically provide anonymity layers on top of regular communication. And in some sense, this was my first project where I always thought about high performance as my main thing for wireless and decentralization. But now we have a new angle, which mm -hmm. is adversary resistance. And the adversary resistance were in network level and physical level resistance. And this where we did two projects. You can already see that there's some aspects of blockchains coming in. Definitely. And in fact, that's exactly where we started, uh, how we started. Were you looking for adversarial testing for decentralized models? And that led you to learn more about this financial system that was sometimes getting attacked? I mean, we, we've heard a lot about the adversarial nature of the blockchain space. But yeah, I'm curious how that linked up. No, I hadn't heard of the blockchain at all at the time. Okay. And when we were doing this, it was purely wireless. And we were driven by very practical issues. We wanted to get a technology and an app out for, for individuals. Mm -hmm. Literally, actually ship it to the protesters. And to provide a resistance against tracking of the IP address, B, resistance against tracking of physical location. Mm -hmm. So we did two projects. We uh, did the messaging protocol. At this was also at the time when a lot of messaging apps were coming along. And WhatsApp was a big thing at the time and so forth. It had already become a fairly big thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, right, you still have Signal and Telegram. And so these were all born at that era, by the way. So we had an app called Wildfire. We put it on the Google Play Store. Uh, but uh, and the tech underlying it won some research awards. We called it Spy versus Spy. And um, and we had good fun from research and we were also very practical. Uh, I had this practical bent of mind and, and Julia Fanti was also a very hands-on student. Mm. Uh, I mean, like she built her own bike and stuff like that. So <laughs> cool. she's, she's very hands-on. Nice. And um, so we built this app as an Android uh, app and um, we released it online. So that didn't take off. But nevertheless, I think we got a feel for this adversarial resistance. Mm -hmm. And we did a separate project called LTE Shark, where you would put an antenna on top of your, of your phone. And with this extra antenna on your phone, your phone could now, they cannot triangulate you up to, let's say, 500 feet. So they can say you're roughly in this area, but previously they were the uh, cellular towers can triangulate you up to a few uh, few meters, but or sub-meter, and so basically catch you. But this time you could have up to 100 100 to 300 meters of obfuscation. Mm, nice. So this was a physical device, like an antenna system that you could put, connect on top of your regular phone. Mm. So we did the research underlying it and the technology and we brought it to sort of practical products. But they were products at a university level. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were proof of concept, you could say. Uh, they were funded by the National Science Foundation so and um, the National Security Agency. So we are thankful. <laughs> they gave us a blank check to do this research oh, with cool. no, nothing at stake. I think I'm still trying to find the link to blockchain stuff. Like, So this is still within wireless and this is almost like physical. You're talking actually like techniques in the physical world. But yeah, where does it, where does it lead to this sort of decentralized network blockchain land? Exactly. So we were giving these talks around mm -hmm. and we talked to a variety of people in both academia and in the market space. Around that time, uh, we met a colleague. Uh, we had just hired him as an assistant professor at Illinois. His name is Andrew Miller. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and Andrew Miller was uh, been in blockchain since his high school, from the days of Nakamoto. And uh, he was, blockchains were kind of all he did. And he said, you know, this is very related to a major issue in blockchains. Bitcoin transactions 
Bitcoin has anonymity at the wallet level as an address, but IP addresses can be tracked to wallets based on your transaction. It's an issue. And there were some heuristics and hearsay about in on Reddit forums that people can do it. And he, he put this idea in our head. I clearly remember that sort of uh, February cold afternoon in Illinois when he said that. And we got into this. We said, okay, we were trying to do de-anonymization and anonymity protection algorithms for wireless. But at a conceptual level, it's still a networking stack and we can bring it to Bitcoin. Hmm. So we did our first project where we tried to de-anonymize. Basically, when you transmit a transaction on chain, on, uh, on the Bitcoin network, it goes through the IP network. And if uh, an adversary is looks is just listening to the timestamps of which transaction packets were received in which location where, then they can go and triangulate as to who the source, which IP address was probably likely the source of this transaction. Mm. And we showed, we built sort of machine learning protocols that can do it very, very cheaply. That means just a few hundred dollars of botnets that you can build on the network and you de-anonymize really every transaction on Bitcoin. It's not de-anonymization to a physical person, but it's de-anonymization to a IP address, which is close. I think I see your link here. So it's kind of like you started from sort of the land of research, dealing with these big companies, you went into industry, you kind of come back to academia, finding new problems. And what you learn is like this adversarial mindset where you're like, you have to, like in your case, you were trying to build to counter an adversary. But the minute you introduce an adversary, you're thinking like an adversary. And then you were able to go into this new field and basically use the adversarial perspective. This is interesting, yeah. And it was very close. We wanted to just prevent um, IP addresses from being tied to Bitcoin transactions. Mm. You lose your entire anonymity on chain if your IP addresses are tied to every transaction. Totally. And so that's how we got in. And we the, once we showed that the existing networking protocols, uh, they hadn't changed since the days of Nakamoto. Uh, and uh, so we designed the first sort of networking protocol with focus on how to bring anonymity in your IP address when you transmit mm. uh, in, in terms of which transaction was sent. And we had this protocol called Dandelion. Mm -hmm. It was a lightweight protocol, uh, cryptographically very lightweight. And it was uh, also compatible with existing. So not everybody needs to use it. So you use Dandelion on your networking stack. It was a networking stack change. Nothing to change the L1 layer or consensus or anything. It's just how you do the packets forwarding. And uh, Dandelion was a way of putting randomness in where you send and whom to send and when to send that provided this anonymity layer. Dandelion, what era are we talking now? So this Dandelion is... was 2017, 2016 okay. through 17. We put that paper up on a public research forum called Archive. And in the morning, we had dozens of messages from wow. people and a community we had never heard of. This was the Bitcoin community. <laughs> they had found your paper and they wanted to talk. Just overnight. Okay. And I say, cool. oh, wait a minute. Uh, this is a very different pace of research and activity and engagement than I'm ever used to in the wireless world. Mm. And it was really a extraordinarily exhilarating to meet an open society, which is so interested in, they want to try it like right now. Yeah. Did you leave academia then at this point? Did you like actually go foray back out into industry? 
Yeah, so we first tried to get Dandelion into Bitcoin Core. So we spent a lot of time. We met all their devs, and it got into several cryptocurrencies. You know, Monero, Mimble, Mimble. Several currencies mm -hmm. used our. It was a networking stack, so it doesn't change their consensus. So it's kind of harmless. Why mm -hmm. not? And we showed that it doesn't harm your performance anyway. Um, so it's an extra level of anonymity that you have. And uh, sometime around late 2017, um, Julia had, had just gotten a job at Carnegie Mellon as a professor. But before joining and just at the time of joining, she took some leave and I took leave and um, we got into the crypto world. So we, that's our first crypto startup. 2017. That's kind of the same time I started this show, actually. That's yeah. right. So. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people jumped in then. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, we wanted to build a good scientific base. What's the best way to do proof of work? Proof of stake was a thing at the time. Finality gadget, sharding, they were all topics that Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik were just talking. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to understand them. They're all networking and communication aspects. And I had just gotten flavor for adversarial resistance. And I was always interested in robustness and scaling. So all these put together, I realized this is a thing for people like me and my collaborators in the wireless world. So I went and talked to a bunch of my friends uh, from the previous era, uh, including David Shea and Sriram Kannan. Mm -hmm. They were doing computational biology and uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It okay. wasn't because I, <laughs> yeah, I think they can see that I'm fully in uh, and mm -hmm. I said the water is warm and it's very easy to work in the area because we are communicating, we are storing and uh, it's still networking at its core, decentralized networking. Mm. But that first project that you had them leap in with you in 2017, that's not what you work on today. What happened to it? No. So we, uh, 2018 crypto winter hit, it was a rush, like within 12 months, Everything started and closed. Mm -hmm. That was a rapid winter. Uh, and uh, the same rush with which people can come in, I realize can also go. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> in wireless, somehow things are slow to come, yeah. but they also are slow to leave. I mean, there's just like some physical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas here, 2018, um, I mean, you were there, Anna, and Tarun was there. and Sea several change of us, was fast. It was fast. And a yeah. lot of people said it's actually over. This was just a bubble for one time. But I, and, and you know, as you can see, my collaborators that we worked together at the time, we were in it for the long haul. Cool. We had enjoyed working on this area. And we sort of went back to academics. I went back to Illinois and Julia went to Carnegie Mellon. And we were working on a variety of research topics. We just wanted to understand the principles and the basic protocol. What's the best proof of work protocol? That was Prism. Mm -hmm. What's the best proof of stake protocol, which has dynamic availability and handle dynamic stake capabilities? What's the best way to mix proof of work and stake? The fungibly, mm -hmm. you know, like some parts work, some parts stake. This is the Minotaur protocol. And what's the best way to do sharding? So all the layer one methods. And then we've spent time on what's the best way to do data availability. So you may want to do new cryptographic methods that bring hash accumulators, Merkle trees, together with information theoretic methods of coding. And you put the two fields together, so we have this coded Merkle trees that are the sort of the right libraries to construct for data availability. So I think we, we, we developed what now I call the principles of blockchains at the layer one. I'm wondering all of a sudden if there's a textbook in the works, because that sounds like that era of like certain parts of it becoming formalized. Like when you, when you say you can like identify the best, then it suggests that like enough research has happened that like you feel confident that there's like a standard that could potentially be written down. 
Do you think we're there for some of those things? I feel comfortable to say that we have the principles. In fact, I teach this class right now. I'm yeah, teaching yeah. it at Princeton, <laughs> Principles of Blockchains. Mm -hmm. And you know, anyone who's interested, it's web3.princeton.edu. Cool. But it's a 2022 book. You know, when I wrote the book with David Shea, co-authored in 2004, it was a book, like literally a book. Yeah, yeah. I think five, 500, 500 to 600 pages. And it's that style had, it was published by Cambridge University Press not changed since the days of Newton. You know, mm. They also published Newton's Principia Mathematica. But this is a 2022 book. And so which means it has about six, seven pages of lecture notes. There is a GitHub uh, page and, and a venue to program what the protocols are for every lecture. Mm -hmm. There is a YouTube channel. And in a nod to my very young millennial or even sub-millennial student, I don't know what the right Gen Z Zillenia? maybe students. Yeah, what are they? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what the students are, we even have a three-minute summary a video for each lecture. Okay, for the, the TikTok crowd, TikTok I guess. TikTok generation, yeah. yeah. There so go. there's a three-minute, <laughs> and some students are asking me to make a YouTube short, you know, this mm -hmm. one-minute YouTube short. So it's a modern book with a Discord server, uh, some nice. parts uh, unavoidable, LaTeX and Overleaf documents, yeah. the disc, GitHub, and YouTube videos. So it's a modern book uh, that I teach. It's a large class by Princeton standards, but it's open to everyone. Cool. And I enjoy in just discussing the basic principles of blockchains. Mm. I think, again, this was done during the crypto winter uh, from uh, October to 2018 through 2020. Cool. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of a, something that I'm doing over at, the Z at ZK Hack. With the ZK, I'm going to do a little shill for something I'm doing too. ZK Whiteboard Sessions, if people aren't aware, we actually have like video series, Discord server, and we're also experimenting with shorts, which is really funny when you're dealing with deep math. <laughs> I don't know if it works. Because <laughs> it's like, anyway, but uh, we're trying it out. We're going to see if... if yeah, if people like it. And I just want to say more power to you. You know, let the power of the universe come to such efforts. It's all very good. It's open, permissionless. It's the opposite of the, and I'm early in that conversation, I mentioned about a country club yeah. environment. This is the opposite no, of that. It's an extraordinary feeling to be part of the this democratic movement where knowledge is democratized. So besides the book and the creation of some of these standards to better formalize and understand why some things work and then communicate it. What else are you working on? Because I know that, you know, we, we know you come in and out of academia. So yeah, what are you working on now? Yeah, and the crypto industry also came back in uh, late 2020 and early 2021. Mm -hmm. And But wireless had never come back. It was still, uh, and in fact, uh, Anna and Tarun, the wireless industry had gone the other way. So in 2000, when we were doing Flareon Technologies, there were a dozen carriers and a dozen equipment makers and um, several handset makers. But now, the, over the two decades since, the industry had extraordinarily consolidated. There were just a few carriers. There were four to begin with. And by the time 2020 came, it became three mm -hmm. in the US. There's uh, AT&T, there's Verizon, and then there is T-Mobile, which uh, took over Sprint. And so just three carriers and really just AT&T and Verizon, they're very highly consolidated. Whereas the tailwinds of the industry were blowing nicely which is that the hardware became very inexpensive. So base stations are like Wi-Fi plus plus, you know, Wi-Fi mm -hmm. router, you buy it, it's just a couple of $10, $20. And these base stations that you can put together now, 5G base stations are all not that cheap, but not a whole lot more expensive, a couple of hundred dollars. And much of the networking stack went to cloud, 
So the other thing that happened with Web2, which is uh, helping us here in the de democratization, is that compute became cheap mm. and easily accessible. You no longer need, you no longer need a supercomputer or a heavy equipment. You could just get it on Amazon or Azure, uh, AWS or Azure very easily. So the networking stack, what used to be very vertically integrated, got splintered and went to the cloud. And so the networking got controlled there. So the industry tailwinds have been blowing and I'm still uh, interested in wireless very much, even though my blockchain interests had happened, you know, still part of the same, the same person. Uh, so in 2021, some late 2021, I started thinking about how we should bring crypto native protocols mm -hmm. to uh, wireless. And uh, that's uh, it's like an old flame meets new flame. Normally nice. not a good thing, actually. <laughs> uh, but, but in this case, maybe they were meant to be. Very well. And it's, <laughs> I'm the same person. And yeah. um, that's what I've been spending all my energy and uh, intellectual energy and entrepreneurial energy on. Interesting. Has anyone tried to tackle this? Like mixing wireless and blockchain? Like, and, and how would you? Is it is it sort of, is it in the incentivization of, I don't know, running infrastructure? Is it in something else that would like, I don't know, help to, to grow some sort of network? Yeah, so uh, I, when I started at some point, I think someone naturally mentioned to me this project called Helium, mm -hmm. which is a way to, uh, which, was a, which is a blockchain, which is a way to incentivize people to buy Helium hotspots. So they sell hotspots or at least they have vendors, approved vendors selling hotspots. And um, you could buy them, put it in your balcony, put it in your house. Uh, my neighbor in Illinois had two, one in the front, one in the backyard. And so I met mom and pop people who have these hotspots and they use this to earn Helium tokens and mm. by uh, having uh, saying that I put it up. And the way the proof would work, uh, so what Helium showed was the power of tokenized incentives. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could cover a large network and Helium at at some point and maybe still now has a million hotspots. So that's a large number. People put in a few hundred to a thousand dollars. So that's already a billion dollars to close to a billion dollars of fiat coming in and using this and build the network organically. And I think it showed the power of the blockchain spirit, which is incentives, uh, mm -hmm. allowing individuals to participate together you know, as a personal good incentivized for personal benefit, but having a global effect and a global network effect. But Helium did this in a way that there's no, the incentives are trust me incentives in the sense that they're Helium branded boxes, they're closed shut, they're not programmable. Um, so the trust is basically with Helium, but incentives are open. I see, I see. I do see a bit of the kind of mapping of like the, these hotspots that are incentivized to miners that are incentivized, like miners all over the world are incentivized by the rewards that they could earn through running this stuff. Here, you're trying to use that model in the real world to run actual infrastructure, but for something else. But what you just said was like, this particular project sounds like it's still pretty centralized. It's not necessarily built in the spirit of like truly decentralizing wireless or like actually creating this hotspot mesh that's truly decentralized. Is that true? The technology definitely is centralized because the trust is in the hardware. So okay. you, you, you cannot participate in the Helium network with our own equipment in the lab. Mm -hmm. You have to buy it from Helium or approved vendors. The trust is very much uh, in, centralized. Uh, but on the other hand, the spirit perhaps was decentralized. I mean, I can't speak to that. But mm -hmm. I think the tech was not in line yet. 
and partly because, or maybe mostly because, the tech was not there. So what is this tech I'm alluding to, right? So you put up a base station or you put up a hotspot and you give it a fiber connection. So that means you really switch it on. Yeah. So it's now connected to the internet. How does anyone verify you're connected to the internet and what speed do you have? In today, we have things called speedtest.com. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can do a ping test. You can go to speedtest.com and it'll just check your uplink, downlink. Mm -hmm. Well, speedtest.com is a centralized, trusted machine and you trust whatever numbers they give you. Yeah. I mean, if they say you have um, 100 Mbps uplink, then you accept it. I mean, what are you going to do? You have no way of checking yourself. And internet, this, this is the area of network, what is called telemetry. So that means you measure networking performance. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I say my phone, I'm getting 10 Mbps connection on my to do, while I'm downloading YouTube. Mm -hmm. Like, who's to check that? If Verizon says I got it, then I, I mean, that's what I got. I guess like, the telemetry is always just given to you by the, the host, whoever's like providing you with that's the service. That's it. They're it's saying, a centralized. You're doing great. It's great. <laughs> that's it. down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the little bars on the phone. It's not like that's some, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there's not even a he said, she said, actually. There's yeah. only, uh, you know, they said. And <laughs> it's been that way, which is fine because wireless and like I said, communication was always centralized and top down. Mm -hmm. And um, so in some sense, the basic tech was not there. And even uh, the underlying um, inventions were not there. And so this was an opportunity for me to think from first principles. So we rebuilt Classic, very classic, decades-old internet measurement protocols, ping, mm. iperf, traceroute, which measure how much a certain link is carry, capable of carrying in terms of throughput, but this time with Byzantine resistance. Interesting. That is, other, other side, people don't need to follow protocol, but you can do speed test without having a speedtest.com server. Mm. So we That's call this cool. proof of backhaul. So we basically did this series of uh, inventions that we call proof of bandwidth. I'm using bandwidth metaphorically by meaning, uh, you know, have bandwidth. So that various network elements and this could be backhaul. It could be service. Backhaul means I have a hotspot. I'm connected with a one Gbps fiber. Like how do you prove to other people that you have a one Gbps connection? And this should be trust-free. That means a third party should be able to check that this proof was legit. In the mm. true spirit of proof of work, in the true spirit of proof of stake, right? The stake is on the ledger. I can check if your, if your uh, proof of stake lottery worked. And I can check if the nonce worked in proof of work. Mm. How do you do in a similar trust, crypto-native, trust-free manner, proof of bandwidth? So this is networking protocols meets basic crypto primitives. Interesting. One question I have is building kind of these like basic networking primitives in a Byzantine resistant way makes a lot of sense. But do you imagine that the adoption of this is from crypto networks first? Or do you imagine that the adoption comes from, say, you know, someone who's a pirate cellular carrier and like you know they're they're kind of like hey like we're using spectrum illegally and like this is like how we're gonna like pirate radio style i'm just kind of curious like where where you think this fits on the spectrum of like who's the initial sort of user consumer of this i'm looking at it on both sides i mean helium showed that there is a demand for building ground up and right now helium boxes are closed, but if you can have an SSH port or we're working to sort of open them up and uh, the fitness chain is the, is the company that uh, commercializing these inventions. Um, 
and witnesschain.com is where we are. And these inventions, they are lightweight stack that lives on top of these radios. So it should be existing hotspots, right? Should be able to bootstrap and benefit from having trust-free incentives. The other thing, Tarun, is that once you have trust-free measurements, you don't have to use Helium branded or any specific company branded equipment. You can buy equipment off the shelf for, for much uh, less prices. And this also drives the economics to make them uh, because now there's a market for them. And there are several other projects um, along with uh, Witness Chain that are trying to bring relatively inexpensive hardware base stations from a ground up perspective. Hmm. You also ask what happens to the other side, you know, like existing carriers, what would Verizon and AT&T, and we've been talking to carriers on three continents. And the interest there is not because they already have some base stations, they would like to grow organically, but more like they would like to resell bandwidth. So bandwidth is like airline seats. You know, if you don't fill them, they're gone. The flight is gone. The seat is not taken. Same here. Carriers are in the business of sending packets over the air. If the packets don't contain any data, they're gone. Mm. And uh, even a very good network like Verizon or AT&T would only have about 35% occupancy. It's kind of crazy. Most of their network is just going vacant. Because of the economics, and it's again because of billing. Mm. You know, they, I have a service from AT&T. It's $90 all-you-can-eat service. It's a buffet. And uh, there's no incentive for the carrier or me to do anything better. So you're saying and, <coughs> we're getting obese off excess spectrum. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's not, it's best effort. You know, you get what you get. But many companies would like a lot more, uh, they're more flexible, but they would like a lot more service. I'll give you an example. Here's a contract. 500,000 devices, all Bay Area zip code between midnight and 4 a.m. I want one GB of data, wireless, mm. all Bay Area zip code. This could be Tesla updating all their cars in the middle of the night between midnight and 4 a.m. every day. But there is even for a, for such a mighty sort of, uh, even between them, they've not had a contract like this. And this I have from my own decades of experience, it's just a hard business because carriers have, I mean, they have lawyers and lawyers have to sit down and do the contract. In other words, data and networking is a commodity, but it acts anything like <gasps> that. Mm. There is no smart secondary markets. There are no futures on data markets. I mean, there is, it's not a flexible marketplace. And witness chain protocols by separating measurement and billing from service, mm -hmm. you can separate the two. Historically, they've been together, basically. And which is why lawyers are there and you need legal contracts to enforce it. Because they're doing the same, both the service and the billing. So you need sort of legal contracts to enforce it. But if you can separate them out and cryptography and crypto protocols provide trust on the measurements, and the service that you gave and tie them together, then you have economic, what shall I say, uh, lubricant to move the market to become more efficient. So there are these economic forces. They are slower than, um, to put it politely, way slower than the blockchain side, which is open and composable and permissionless. Uh, because these are only a fewer entities, but the market forces are in the favor of such technology being there. I'm bullish, someone who's been around for some two decades in this industry. I have no doubt in my mind that 
you know, what you said, you sort of hate this branding of Web3, right? I think it's true, but this would be one of the large, last dinosaurs um, because they haven't changed since yeah. uh, Web1 did not really change, Web2 didn't change them. And this would be one of the industries that would become more nimble, more efficient. Uh, and the forces are in favor of making this efficiency. One, one actual, um, I guess, other point to this is you know, in the same way that trying to be a new type of money fights the nation state, trying to unbundle spectrum implicitly does sort of have the same subversive, like, cypherpunk thing, because you're sort of, you are the pirate radio, mm. except for many different bands in some ways for communication. Do you imagine that that will be... um a sort of fight like where like the big carriers are like look at the like like let's suppose this whole space grows a lot and uh do you think the big carriers will try to go kind of lobby governments to be like no 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 this illegal government's like monopoly over spectrum is being violated by this type of story because like it could actually have that kind of iconoclastic end state because it is challenging a state monopoly in the same way they were challenging mm. a state monopoly on money which is actually kind of interesting in the sense that I don't think anyone's framed it that way. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that we should 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 try to make it as adversarial as that, but it could be viewed that way very, very easily. It could be. That would be, uh, I think, we've already won at that stage <laughs> when we get there. <laughs> so I would be, uh, that would be, uh, I think, a good day already um, because when you're having pushback at that level is a good thing. So that means you well past the noise level. But the third aspect, Tarun, which is sort of, you said, is the is the role of the government from a, from a national security perspective. Um, the national security agencies from the army, the military, the navy, they've been always been bullish on decentralized networking, partly because they work in hostile areas where there is no way to enforce uh, the rule of the law. Mm. Um, so in a way, sort of government is sort of against crypto, but in this case, actually, they could be in favor uh, because of uh, just making it more robust to operate in environments which are inherently hostile to operate. Interesting. I, I guess I just think about all of the kind of like the famous sort of like, I mean, depending on how you view history, like the robber barons of Spectrum, right? Like the Anschultz of the world and stuff like that. And so there's sort of this question of like, they've sort of, effectively enforced, you know, like Dish and like a few people who've like won the Spectrum auctions by perhaps unscrupulous means, they have a, a lot of incentive for this not to work, right? In some ways. Mm. I, I could imagine that ends up being a war. Like, I agree with you. Like, if it even is a war, it will have already been like, you would already have been successful, right? But like, if we just like play this out to like that piece of the world, what what do you kind of imagine there are any, like, the adversary could do in response? Like, let's say this network grows and, like, let's say there's a million devices using it. How do you think it could could get, do you think there is some sort of, like, regulatory crutch? Or do you think it's, like, it, it really is like a layer one blockchain where it's, like, once the chain is around, there's enough people and there's enough density that it's just very hard to censor at some scale? I mean, wireless is decentralized by geography. You know, there's so many people in so many places and just literally distances. So I would say that decentralized is hard to crack down 
as you would crack down on the internet, you know, like the Great Wall of China. So you can crack that down. But here, this is truly decentralized. There's you have to go block by block, mm. every few every few hundred feet, and sort of shut the things down. It's uh, there is something very innately decentralized and open about wireless uh, that is sensor resistant. But the tech and the underlying networkings around it should be commensurate with it. And I think. Um, for a variety of reasons, the tech had never sort of been invented uh, to make uh, adversary resistant measurements and protocols. And Helium sees it actually, right? What kind of adversarial action do you envision? Well, Helium, you see it because it's Helium branded tech and they have people report, I put it hotspot here and I have several of them. Well, I mean, you can see some things in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, how did I mean, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. And someone your, your your argument is that there could be a supply chain attack against them that backdoors like the actual device. Yeah, that's exactly what has happened. And, yeah. the, and the fact that you can't have yeah yeah yeah. Okay. And if the protocols are trust me, then you don't uh, have the trust, and it's vulnerable. And you can see it actually already mm -hmm. happening on that network. So what we are trying to just do is to first principles uh, um, bring measurement techniques that are native crypto, so you can verify from far. This is the most violent usage of metrics in some sense, because if it succeeds, it, it actually does like sort of break a state monopoly, which is a very, you know, I think that, that to me, that's like the thing that's most interesting about it. Cool. I want to ask you a little bit about the proof of bandwidth and the proof of backhaul. I'm just curious, like you sort of said it, but that's not your consensus mechanism, is it? Like, what is, where's the blockchain part? Is it sort of like there's incentive to run these things yourself just by having a token? Or is there some crypto, like cryptography blockchain part in the actual system? So excellent question, Anna. So this is not a layer one by itself. So what these are, these are crypto protocols, just like your proof of work. You have a nonce and you produce that nonce to do some activity. That activity in Bitcoin and proof of work is propose a block and go inside a chain. Mm -hmm. And that's part of a consensus protocol. Here, proof of backhaul is a crypto, again, just, uh, just like proof of work would be showing a nonce, here you have some other proof. It's a cryptographic proof or a witness of the network. That's why we call it witness, because the network is literally witnessing who got what. And so the witness proofs are taken and these proofs can be put on chain as an opcode. So I think of these proof of backhaul or witness proofs as opcodes, which are network level opcodes that can be used to tie incentives on. So there's not a layer one by itself. There could be, it could fit. These opcodes can sit on any other existing L1 uh, or all of them. In fact, you can draw them as an Oracle, pull them in. So they're naturally implemented as a proofs which are the state channel that can update and keep track of these proofs over time. And from a blockchain perspective, pull them in through an Oracle. Would, would somebody build a dApp then? I'm just trying to picture like even the incentivization token part, like would it just be an ERC-20 that lives on another blockchain that has some connection? Or do you imagine there being like a dApp that manages the, this somehow? Yeah, so uh, what this allows is two things, actually, right? So I think first is, I think I already we talked about it, which is that any device can come in. You don't mm -hmm. have to have branding by a company and trust it. So that part is good. So any device, any tech can come in. You can have Wi-Fi, 4G, 5G, and our demos are on all these technologies. The second part is the what you're alluding to, which is the composability and programmability. What do you do with these proofs? Who will use them? Which kind of a DAP or which contract will use them? 
couple of use cases. First use case could be a carrier itself, which is selling and reselling bandwidth. This is the marketplace for data. Mm. And just like you have futures and marketplace for data, you want a contract, you're a business, you're a dash cam company that wants backhaul in certain zip codes for certain amounts of time, you can buy them through contracts on chain. This is the subversive part, by the way. This is the part that is is, is actually kind of anti the state's monopoly on spectrum. <laughs> I will just, I just want to point out that is that is actually, you know, We've spent so much time in algorithmic game theory designing these auctions for a monopolistic state. And like, this is basically getting around that. So like, I think that's like kind of the most, you know, salient point about this because such products don't exist because state has transfer restrictions on any mm. transfer of spectrum, right? Whereas like here you're arguing that, hey, I can just sell my own, I can resell my spectrum whenever I want. Mm. That's it. We call it ECN, Elastic Cloud Networking as opposed to EC2, which is Elastic Cloud Computing. They're the equivalent of freeing up networking and having a marketplace. And compute was in one place, like Amazon sells it, AWS and Microsoft sells Azure. But this is decentralized because networking is mom and pop putting it up. That's mm -hmm. one type of an app. And we have an ECN demo living over the air and it's live in, in, South, in South India, Bangalore. We have Spectrum experimental license to try this out. So ECN is live over the air in, in India. Another app could be, and I'm imagining this, this doesn't exist yet, is a DeFi app that wants to have hard assets as collateral. Many DeFi apps could be living on their own tokens and they would like to collateralize it or bring hard assets. Well, you can bring hard assets perhaps through a stable coin, uh, maybe, right? But you could also bring like literally hard assets by physical assets of networking. Hmm. If you actually have a hotspot that's serving so many people and getting such and such revenue and such and such backhaul, chances are you won't exist, exit overnight. I mean, you have physical devices and physical service. So this could be hard collateral to put on chain and then offer as basically make the market flexible, make it so mm -hmm. there is no bring debt financing to the networks. So this could be a way in which people could finance hotspots. And it's kind of because you have these proofs, I guess it's digitally native Yeah, already. the proofs tie them together, exactly. They're trust-free proofs. Mm -hmm. And these are hardware, right? How do you show and we didn't get into the deep tech, but I think this is the, that's the fun yeah. part, what I meant by old flame and new flame. Do together. you want to actually be part of the hardware creation though? Or are you sort of like assuming these hardware pieces already exist and you're just sort of the glue? Yeah, they exist, they exist okay. already. So in fact, one of the, so I talked about system view, Anna, which is to think uh, how different parts of a system put together. And uh, the same uh, system view comes in here. So the hardware uh, are very inexpensive ones. The sits on the cloud. Witness Chain is a very simple app through a standard interface, gRPC interfaces on the cloud, and a very simple app on your device side, which is could be a phone, it could be an app on the phone, on a Wi-Fi router, it could be a simple firmware upgrade. Uh, they are simple, lightweight, software only, stitching together. So devices exist, the pieces exist, we just want to stitch them together in a trust-free manner. Cool. That's what a carrier does. A carrier today stitches together by bringing the trust. So you trust Verizon, you trust AT&T. Mm. So they are the trusted entity, stitching together everything and billing and metering everything. And we are basically saying these crypto protocols should replace a carrier today. Mm. If you, you know, let, let's say uh, Helium was the Bitcoin of sort of wireless distribution, where do you view kind of witness chain you know, what, what sort of, how would you compare it to some, you know, when someone's like, 
hey, I've heard of this. I heard of this helium thing. I read some good press and I read some very bad press. Uh, and then, you know, how would you convince them that, that there's like something kind of greater here in the, in the sense of, uh, you know, avoiding some of the pitfalls that we've seen before? I would appeal to the better, uh, you know, the good side and the angel side. I'm always on the on the Jedi side. Uh, and I would say that you want these boxes are closed. You can't do anything with them to open them up. So we are starting this in Witness Chain. We have a sister site or within Heli- within Witness Chain called heliummeb.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tarun, they are doing MEV, but there's no MEV on wireless because it's a closed box with no way to SSH in, no programmability. Mm. It's a fixed box, but for every fixed box, there is a way around it. And we are bringing some basic MEV activity, which is a force of good, I think, of innovation to this area. So this is a more incremental, witness chain is a more, is the final stage. Uh, but heliummeb.com uh, through witness chain is a starting point if you already have helium hotspots. And we'll have more to come. So help to put box in the middle and just to open up these boxes that one has already. And we are uh, hoping that they can be opened up. And if not, we'll try making them open ourselves. Okay. Uh, you know, these are physical devices and we also have the tech to open them. So they're never really foolproof. Uh, and uh, so that's our effort with Helium MEV. Mm. Just to provide some programmability, the boxes exist and just open them up. You're basically saying like, it's cool that they existed no matter what, because the boxes got out into people's ho- like hands and that's something you can use. That's right. And why would people throw them? They already paid sure. really good money for that. Um, and uh, and I'm always in favor of uh, using the emotion and the energy associated with uh, that what you were alluding to into a positive force. Cool.